Well, thank you very much indeed for the fabulous introduction, and I do hope I can live up to that in the, in the brief time that we have together, and I'm very, very honoured to be here talking about male nudes in uh, the British Museum. Can, uh, can you not hear very well? Is, it, is that any better now? Um, is that, can you hear now? I'm talking about, um, oh, that's it. I'm talking about the various ways that ancient statues of male nudes have been used to shape the modern male body um, and how providing those modern male bodies with classical dimensions have allowed those bodies to say something about power and sexuality, which are the desire and the domination of my title. So a founding text for the way we look at, the way we understand uh, Greek, ancient Greek statues of the male nude is a German analysis of Greek art published in 1764. Um, it's called The History of the Art of Antiquity by Johann Winkelmann. And here you see a rather lovely painting of the rather luxuriating way in which he is working on his analysis of classical statues. And if only all us academics could spend our time dressed in that way as we study the ancient world, everything would be right with the world. Um, he was especially interested in four male nudes that were housed in the Belvedere courtyard in the Vatican in Rome, which you can still see there today. He treated those nudes as the most important masterpieces of ancient art. And that, and they, the interest in them, his description of them as the, the most perfect pieces of ancient art were usurped in the early 19th century when um, they were replaced as ideals by the display of the Parthenon marbles, uh, some of which you can now see in the British Museum. But his readings of these four male nudes were widely influential, so influential that they are often the basis on which modern guidebooks describe how to understand uh, Greek statuary. And they're very revealing for their, both their political and their homoerotic content. And for example, the Leocorn um, that you see here, um, where um, the father is attempting to fight off the snakes that are going to um, kill his children, were described, uh, this statue was described by Winkelmann as an example of male heroism in extremity, an embodiment of the individual's violent struggle for freedom, an active, muscular hero. Correspondingly, the Belvedere torso, which you see next to it, was imagined by Winkelmann as a representation of the hero Hercules. Hercules, after he has died, after he has ascended to join the Olympians, Hercules, in uh, contemplation of his past strength and his past achievements. Winkelmann saw these two statues as uh, the perfect examples of a muscular masculinity, an active, powerful male, a self in conflict with the world. Right. In contrast, when he wrote about these other two statues, the Belvedere Antinous, 
he argued that the statue of Antinous was the statue of a Greek hero, whereas we understand it today to be the image of the lover of the Emperor Hadrian. What interested him about this statue is that there's no active display of physical power. Right? He describes it in terms of its beauty as a sensual and a tranquil body. Uh, spe the spectator, who he always imagines to be a male, uh, is invited to look at this depiction of a youth who is self-absorbed, uh, a youth whose absorption the spectator intrudes into. And next to it, we have the Belvedere Apollo, which Winkelmann saw um, as a complex mix of the presentation of power and erotic beauty. Um, he saw the statue as an example of the god Apollo in the aftermath of his victory uh, fighting a snake, whose parts of whom you can see sort of round the um, um, piece of um, tree that he's leaning against. So this is supposed to be an image of Apollo after he has shot a serpent with his arrow. And so for Winkelmann, it becomes an image of a, divine, a divinely powerful male self, but a male self at ease, a male self after combat, um, a hard manliness melting into ease. And the release of the arrow, of course, suggests a kind of sexual relaxation. So this statue in particular became Winkelmann's ideal male figure uh, and um, achieved that idealism within 18th century culture, um, a focus for spectators' fantasies about male domination and tender desirability. Now, there are many contexts in which we could now um, look at these sorts of statues and the influence of the way Winkelmann read them on modern male bodies. Um, for example, we could look at the 1920s and 1930s in Nazi Germany. We could look at the way that the, the proportions of Greek statuary, the ideology of power associated with them, was uh, taken over by uh, Major Hans Soren and used to train the bodies of German soldiers. Uh, Hitler was a bit concerned about the nudity of this type of training. Um, the, um, the image of uh, the Greek statuary is also taken up in Nazi art and is documented in the filming of the Berlin Olympics in 1936. Uh, famously, the first of the two films that were made by Leni Riefenstahl about the Berlin Olympics contains an opening scene in which the um, celebrated statue by Myron of the discus thrower, the Roman copy of which you can see here in the British Museum, um, the, the statue of the ancient discus thrower dissolves into the body of a German Olympic competitor. So we have an example on film of this idea of classical statuary feeding into modern bodies and having very important significances in terms of uh, politics and um, domination. But I don't want to talk about anything like that today. <laughs> I want to talk about bodybuilding. I want to talk about popular culture because although or perhaps because I am a professor of Latin, I also happen to be very interested 
in the presence of antiquity in cinema, as Ian so kindly mentioned. And the reason that I am speaking about statuary in this way and about bodybuilding is because as someone who is interested in antiquity in cinema, I came across a very strange genre of Italian films. Italian films which nowadays are known as pepler or sword and sandal films or sometimes spaghetti epics. And they were a series of films made largely in the 1950s and the 1960s with very specific and rather odd characteristics. The narratives were always centered around strongmen heroes, predominantly, but not exclusively, Hercules, sometimes Samson and various others of that kind. The hero is generally played by an American bodybuilder. Or if he's played by an Italian, as these films were all made in Italy, the Italian who played the lead role would take on an appropriate American-sounding pseudonym. So um, of the names listed uh, in these posters, um, Reg Park, Gordon Scott, Mark Forrest, not all of these are actually Americans. Some are Italians posing as Americans. And trying to understand what role antiquity had in these films, why these films were made in the 1950s in Italy with Hercules played by American bodybuilder, took me back to a study of the, play, the relationship between bodybuilding and the ancient world and the relationship between bodybuilding and statues uh, right at the start of um, the practice of bodybuilding. Okay. So bodybuilding begins in the late 19th century. Um, it arises out of the feats of strength uh, performed in circuses and fun fairs. Um, circus programs would include not just moments where um, the strong man would bend iron bars, break chains, wrestle with lions, uh, lift weights, but also moments that were wholly focused on the representation of classical figures, a rather static moment when strength is simply put on display and is not used. The history of bodybuilding proper really begins with the strongman Eugene Sandow, who you can see in these uh, rather beautiful images here. Um, he would not just um, pose lifting human dumbbells, as he's so described in the uh, poster here, but he would also appear just statically wearing a fig leaf or a large, um, a, a uh, animal skin loincloth, uh, posed against uh, classical props, in this case, a fetching pillar, um, sometimes carrying uh, a prop like uh, a club. And he would uh, be wearing bronze body paint. He would step inside a glass case and he would pose in a series of classical uh, positions um, set to music. Now, that's a rather extraordinary combination of things to be doing in a late 19th century circus show. Some of the poses were very close imitations of celebrated statues from antiquity. 
and the, uh, the master of ceremonies would shout out the name of the classical statue that Sandow was posing as, the dying Gaul, he would say, in this particular case, or Hercules, the Farnese Hercules, which is a particular version, very famous one, of um, the image of Hercules at ease uh, with the Nemean lion's skin um, leaning, that he is leaning against. Now you can see particularly in these two images the, the great effort uh, that took place to reconstruct the poses of classical statues, right down to the definition of the abdominal muscles of Eugene Sandow. And these, um, these acts were advertised um, in terms of displaying not the strongest man in the world, but the most perfect man in the world, which is an interesting change from strong to perfect. Um, the advertisements for these sorts of shows would claim that Sandow had been a weakling until inspired by a statue of Hercules to embark on a program of physical self-improvement. Now, we might ask, why would strong men do this sort of thing in the late 19th century? Um, we can see that perhaps one reason is that the relationship to classical art, the relationship to classical statuary, gives a justification for the display of a male who does not use his muscles, but simply puts them on show. It gives a, a rationale, a legitimacy to the display of the body, but also a legitimate, sorry, uh, I need some more coffee here, I think, a, a justification for looking at that body, because we are now invited to look as if we were looking at a Greek statue. And therefore, the whole, um, the whole ritual is constructed as an experience like going through a living museum. You know, imagine all the statues in the British Museum being posed in this sort of way. That would frighten us. <laughs> um, so we can also see that one of the features, or one of the explanations for why bodybuilders might have initiated this kind of ritual and constructed so close a relationship to Greek classical statues is it clearly gave a cultural prestige to a mass form of entertainment the circus show, the entertainment of the working classes, an entertainment about the improvement of the body rather than the mind. And of course, classical Greek statues were associated with beauty, proportion, symmetry, as well as muscular power. And so Greek statues could give to bodybuilding a moral legitimacy, a sense of self-improvement, not just about the body, but in a kind of moral way as well. So the classical ideal um, didn't just stay within that glass container in the funfair show. The classical ideal was then commercialized, sold to the public through bodybuilding competitions, through physique magazines like this one, uh, a very early example of physical culture from 1899. And here you see the editor of that magazine, Bernard McFadden, on the cover and inside in what are described as classical poses. 
The magazines of this type would also advertise products for sale, products that could turn any man into a modern Hercules. And note, of course, the union in the title of physical and culture. And we see what Greece is doing for um, the bodybuilder. Perhaps the most famous figure to suggest that he could improve you, turn you into a proper man, was Angelo Siciliano, otherwise known as Charles Atlas. He, interestingly here, again, is not described as the world's strongest man, but the world's most handsome man. Um, you can see a kind of superficial attempt to repress the erotic um, readings of Greek statues that Winkelmann had undertaken by replacing the erotic with this idea of beauty, of aesthetics, of handsomeness. But very interestingly, this uh, invitation that Charles Atlas offered famously in his advertisements, the insult on the beach, where the sand get kicks, kicked into the weakling's face, and the weakling then undertakes the Charles, Charles Atlas program that made a man out of Mac. This has been read as a route to Americanization for immigrants into the United States, that through one's body, as a member of the laboring classes, through one's body, one could be transformed from an Italian immigrant to a rounded, full American. And interesting that it should be done through an attempt to model oneself on the shape of Hercules. Now, after World War II, some physique magazines began to circulate in the emerging gay community, such as um, this one called Physique Pictorial. And it can become quite interesting to see which magazines might have been ones explicitly addressing themselves at the gay community, which were ones that were ostensibly straight um, examples of the presentation of the benefits of fitness and health. It's not always easy to discriminate them, and that was the whole point. In these sorts of um, homoerotic magazines, uh, Greek athletics and art is regularly used as a circumlocution for homoeroticism. Again, uh, an opportunity, a justification for posing, uh, in, uh, posing nude and for looking at such images. Um, it was a way of safeguarding mass-produced but privately consumed visualizations of gay desire at a time when you could not have been explicit. So here we have Physique Pictorial, the first of the all-nude, all-male fitness magazines. And we can see that classicism is literally a cover. So one on the left is called the Young, is young Physique. The other is Physique Pictorial. Uh, you can see classicism as a cover, a legitimacy for displaying the body, but also, of course, a suggestiveness, because we all know about the sexuality of the ancient Greeks. And so now we can allow the surfacing of the homoerotic dimension that Winkelmann had seen in the ancient Greek statue. 
And the magazines play sometimes quite funnily and suggestively with this idea that what lurks around these poses, these classical poses, is actually a homoerotic desire. So we have uh, a justification for the pleasure of looking at such images. And we find that our models are often uh, surrounded or propped against suitably suggestive paraphernalia. Um, I was going to um, show uh, some very suggestive paraphernalia, but my nine-year-old daughter came to say goodnight to me yesterday, so I had to kind of tone it down a bit. So we have, for example, uh, the language of Greek sculpture used quite explicitly in these magazines. Um, in this particular illustration, the caption tells us that the muscles of the model are tapering from the deltoids to the waist in a fine praxitalian line. And that's what the text actually says. So the text provides a Greekness, uh, a a relationship to Greek statuary in order to justify the pose and the looking at the pose. Sometimes these captions are very playful. Uh, you would perhaps not think that this particular person, Vic Carlyle, was lying in an especially classical sort of way. However, the caption provides the Greek coding, if you like, for how to understand how to experience the look at uh, this boy. He's 20, we're told he's 20 years old, he's five foot eight tall, he's 151 pounds, he works in a Los Angeles sports store, he reads and collects the classics. He spends many hours in art galleries studying sculpture and the old masters, right? And that's all you need to have, to give you a legitimacy for the display and the look. By the 1950s, filmmakers uh, were producing home videos to circulate on the legitimate market. And they too needed to find a way of um, dealing with the very stringent state censorship. Of course, in, in the subcultural world, there would be many more explicit images, but magazines that were being sold and distributed through the post, films that were being sent uh, on, out on the legitimate market, had to work with this kind of coding. Uh, in one such film from Detroit in 1954 called In the Days of Greek Gods, so think of the title, In the Days of Greek Gods. The film, the little film opens with three bodybuilders at home uh, who decide to compare their poses to Greek statues because one of them has been reading a book about Greek statuary. And then successively you see a still of a Greek statue followed by the bodybuilder posing in that style. I would have shown you a clip from this video, but unfortunately, after all these years, it has now corroded too much to be able to see really what is going on. But it's very interesting the playful hints that the film gives about homoeroticism. Because when the first bodybuilder poses as Apollo, we're told Apollo was a vigorous youth naked but for his cloak. Hercules, we're told, once dressed in women's clothing. And Narcissus, perhaps most, most tellingly of all, we're told, pined away in desire for himself. 
the three of the bodybuilders after posing as Apollo, Hercules, and Narcissus then head off for a cooling shower. Um, at this point, we can see how Winkelmann's homoerotic readings of Greek male nudes have filtered all the way through to mass culture. Now, just by the time we get to the late 50s, um, classical circumventions, uh, the classical alibi, as it's called, um, disappeared from the gay market. It was no longer needed. Uh, the legal barriers for more sexually explicit imagery had uh, collapsed. Uh, there was a possibility of showing much more explicit representations of the male body. Gay desire could start to speak its name. So no need for the bodybuilding fitness alibi, no need for the classical art alibi. And just as that classical veneer fell away from the now explicit gay culture, there emerges the Italian um, epic, the spaghetti epic, the sword and sandal film. The, the very first of them was made in 1957. It was called Hercules, and it starred the American bodybuilder, Steve Reeves. Now, this, uh, this type of um, film, this first film, sorry, I should say, spawned a whole series of muscle men movies. More than 170 were made in Italy in a very short period from 1957 to 1965, which is very intriguing as a film historian or a classicist, why this tiny little sort of moment has all these peculiarities um, in this genre. Now, the characteristics of these films were that the classical hero was always played by a professional bodybuilder. A professional bodybuilder who we've seen is always presented as an American, uh, especially in the surrounding publicity. Uh, they were made in Italy, they were very cheaply produced, and they were directed uh, very explicitly at the Italian working class market. They were not shown in the big cinemas in the big cities. If any of you have seen Cinema Paradiso, there is a moment in that film when um, the village gather in the square to see a film projected on a wall, and it's a film starring Kirk Douglas as Ulysses, which is a kind of bridging film between the Hollywood epic and these Italian um, spaghetti epics. So it's in that kind of context these films were shown. The narrative is uh, a given a very sort of vaguely classical context. Um, it's almost invariably about a community who is victimized by a tyrant. Um, in the case of the first film, Hercules helps to put the rightful king, Jason, back on the throne that has been taken by a usurper. And here we see Hercules at a climactic moment in the film, uh, pulling down the palace of the tyrant in a pose clearly borrowed from the tradition of um, the circus show. The narrative is uh, very simple, very moralistic. He, uh, Hercules is a hero pure as sunlight, gifted with strength and intelligence, a challenge to all evil uh, in the bottom image on the left, you see him being cleansed by uh, a divine fall of rain. Now, we might want to ask, um, this was my original question, why 
such films would be produced in Italy in the post-war period and then widely distributed in Europe and the United States. And one thing that becomes very clear is they're produced in this period because it's a period of the reconstruction of Italy post-war, the period of the Marshall Plan when the United States was supporting the Italian economy. It becomes really interesting to see that Hercules can actually be a code for American because of the history now of bodybuilding in the United States, because the publicity presents the hero as an American playing a classical figure. So we have these peculiar moments of stasis in the films when the bodybuilder takes up bodybuilding type poses. We have a film where the hero always comes from outside the community and rights all its wrongs. It's a bit like Star Trek, right? if you think about it. Rights all the wrongs, restores the status quo, uh, represents freedom, virility, and the American way of life. You notice, for example, in the still from this film at the top, how distinct Hercules is, Steve Reeves, from the other heroes in the film in terms of his body shape. He is the American in this film. The others are weaker Italians, <laughs> if you like. Um, and it's important to note how enormously popular these films were. They had a very important place in popular culture. They didn't just end up in all the minor flea pit cinemas of Italy. They also traveled rather successfully around the United States. Uh, they were disseminated with local competitions looking for Mr. Hercules. Uh, there were uh, Hercules comic books, Hercules hamburgers, uh, Hercules sports shirts, all of which carried the contours, not of the Farnese Hercules now, but of our new American Hercules, Steve Reeves. The, um, Steve Reeves also subsequently, as I will finish by saying, became um, an icon. And so the, the doll figure you see on the right is not an original from the late 1950s, but one that is still on sale on um, various websites, should you um, so desire. Um, on the left, what you see is uh, a kind of um, premier party celebrating the arrival of Hercules in the United States. Um, the classical body here has been converted into a mass cultural commodity. Um, it's used as a way, rather strangely, you might imagine, of linking masculinity, um, muscle, and American dominance. America is coming to save Europe. That is the message of the films. But it's very hard to repress Winkelmann's homoerotic reading of, gay, the, gay, of, of the gay male nude, of the Greek male nude, um, not least because of the culture out of which the statuary came. Um, and what these films attempt to do is embed admiring female spectators into their narratives in order to straighten Hercules out. Um, they 
uh, were not particularly successful, and Steve Reeves, as Hercules, then reappeared in magazines such as Feek, Physique Pictorial, now not as Steve Reeves, the bodybuilder who was Mr. America and Mr. Universe, but Steve Reeves as Hercules. And so, and this is where I will finish, um, his Hercules films um, were appropriated eventually in the late 50s, early 60s by a gay subculture. Uh, they became, uh, they were read as examples of the highest possible camp and Steve Reeves became a gay icon. And I thought this was a fab image to finish with. Here he is as a painting uh, on the front cover of Adonis with his lovely lightning rods in his hands. So in this little tour of the history of bodybuilding and the place largely of Hercules in it, you can see that the classical male nude has been used to shape modern um, male bodies and that uh, the idea of what the classical male nude represents has then in turn been shaped by those modern um, uses. Um, the classical statuary has been converted into a mass cultural commodity, a commodity that tells us some very interesting tales about domination and desirability. Thank you very much indeed. See what I mean? Exciting. And... Um, is it warm in here, or is it just me? It's quite stuffy. Um, I brought Maria a present in case it has raised the temperature. Um, <laughs> oh wow! It's a discoverless fan. <laughs> Every woman should have one. Every man oh, should have one. That's really sweet. Um, and it's um, the discoverless, the British Museum discoverless, that is on its world tour currently in Tokyo. Oh, having uh, been in Kobe, where the exhibition The Greek Body Beautiful opened on the day of the tsunami, I'm sorry to say. But um, I was thinking, you know, of all of those sculptures that Maria showed, probably the Discobolus is the only one now that represents a cultural common coin. And it says something about the power of the Greeks that these bodybuilders could invoke sculptures that would be re readily recognisable. Um, nobody could do that now. And I think probably if you would stand out in Great Russell Street with a, a flip chart of, of various sculptures and ask people to identify one, including Michelangelo's David, the Venus de Milo, the Laocoon, and so on, um, I think this is the only one that, that um, you'd have any chance of getting recognition from. Um, Maria said she will take a couple of questions if anybody has them. Yes, sir. Yeah, just, just two uh, points about the 80s and 90s. Really, the, why the 1890s? Is that partly to do with developments in photography um, and how were they connected? And also at the time, when you read in the literature of the time, for example, Edith Wharton is just one example, that there's quite a fondness uh, among certain classes for uh, tableaus, historical and classical mm -hmm. tableaus. And I wonder you know, if that had a connection as well. Um, I think certainly... Um, oh, sorry, yes. <laughs> um, 
certainly um, photography is very important. And one thing that I didn't mention is the way in which uh, po the poses as um, classical statues by um, nude males features very strongly in the early uh, pornographic um, circulation of, of photographs. And there's obviously a relationship between that kind of posing and um, the sort of um, posing that is done in circus shows. But I think the class issue is, is a really interesting one. And, and um, there was also um, a strong interest in dressing up as classical figures or in constructing tableau among the, um, the educated, the elite classes. But what distinguishes this activity is the focus on, on the body itself. This is not about dressing as or taking on the character of. This is about becoming, in the most visceral sense, a, a, a classical figure. And I think that's, that's quite a distinctive part of this sort of uh, working class uh, entertainment that, that is really worth further exploration. Um, when you look at that body shape there, even though it's called, the magazine's called Adonis, which is a very classical name, of course, the body shape is very different to the classical, um, the perfect forms they were showing off. What, is there any particular reason for this evolution away from this cl classical uh, body shape, even if the poses are somewhat similar? Um, I, think, I think there is a, a clear development within the body building culture for bigger, bulkier, more defined in a way that, that eventually completely um, disconnects its connection with, with classical statuary. Um, and partly it's to do, I would imagine, with trying to be bigger and bigger than previous bodybuilders, but also with the development of, um, um, so we sh shall we say, chemical enhancements. I did. Um, as part of this research some years ago, go to a bodybuilding competition um, to see whether there's any survival of this kind of classicizing um, role in, in, the, in the most modern bodybuilding. And there's almost none. Uh, the only time I could find it in, in the most modern literature is when there was an attempt made in some of the bodybuilding magazines to put forward bodybuilding as an Olympic activity. Uh, which they had tremendous difficulty with because bodybuilders pose. They don't actually, they're not like, you know, the strong men in, in Olympic sports. And because of that distinction, they turn to the classical theme and to the issue that they represent themselves as classical statues as a, as a rhetoric. But if you actually look at the images and the ways in which they pose, they, they have ceased to look like um, those classical statues. So they sort of free themselves from the poses, if you like. Um, Maria, this has been, of course, about the white male body beautiful uh, and just thinking about the black male body beautiful. And there certainly are examples of, of quite a lot of them, of black men being yeah. posed as classical statues. And uh, I can think more of contemporary or near contemporary photography by Robert Mapplethorpe and others. Um, but I, I, you know, wondered what, what you yourself had found in in, in this respect. Um, I th most of the early literature um, is very white, and what you find in the Pepler, the Italian um, spaghetti epics, is that 
after a while, a black bodybuilder can be a sidekick, as they can be in the modern Hollywood epics, but they are never the hero. Um, and I, I have not explored in detail uh, whether blackness then becomes a difficulty um, in trying to use classical imagery. I, I've also not, for example, looked at female bodybuilders, um, and which would be a very interesting project to see if bodybuilding began so closely aligned to the physiques of Greek statues, what do women do? And how do women present their traditions? Um, and clearly that is a project worth exploring as well, both issues of race and gender. It's not really a question, it was just a comment. Just, yeah. the, just wanted to say the current Mr. England, who's a friend of my daughter's, is black, actually. Thank you very much for what had to be rather a brief overview. <clears throat> but can you throw any light on the <clears throat> apparent um, contrast and perhaps explain the German mindset, particularly in the 1930s, when Dr. Hirschfeld's research was repressed and homosexuality, um, Rome, for example, um, in the um, SA, homosexuality was brutally suppressed both in that period and during the war, along with um, other um, uh, repressed groups like the, like the Jews. Um, and yet, at the same time, the admiration for the, um, the strong male figure and fitness, um, both among the young and older and in organized um, games and sports. How, how do you explain that contrast in the mindset? Well. I don't in the sense that I think one of the most, one of the many interesting things about this relationship to antiquity and the use of antiquity is that often it's extremely problematic because there's a tendency either at the level of the nation down to the level of the individual to select an aspect of antiquity that is what you want to use in your particular context, but you can't leave the other aspects of antiquity behind, and so other people can read what you're doing uh, very differently from your own vision of what that relationship is. And that's why uh, particularly the issue of homoeroticism is so interesting, because it seems to me you, you, you can never take that away from classical Greek statuary uh, or the relationship to ancient Greece, uh, no matter how hard you try. But then there are moments when people do try very hard to, um, to eradicate that aspect of one's potential relationship to the ancient world. But it, it's, a, it's a common issue with, uh, for example, if one is modeling one's nation on ancient Rome as a good republic, there's always the potential that you might turn into the corrupt Empire, so so the ancient world's good to work with, or, or at least difficult to work with, depending on which way you look at it, because it can always be read differently. That relationship, it, um, uh, but it's not. It, there is a lot of work done in in this um, area on the relationship of Nazi Germany, um, both ideologically and in practical life, in relation to ancient Greece and the difficulties that had to be negotiated. There, there is a lot of work on that, but it's not something I have touched upon. Well, this has been wonderful, and um, I'm sure we could go on, but um, the room has other guests waiting for it. So would I uh, ask you to put your hands together to appreciate Maria's very erudite, very entertaining speech. Thank you.